Today's episode has a very special guest who very sadly retired from rugby at the age of 27, but has since gone on to become an NHS doctor. Join me, Nick, Chris and Brendan to hear the story of former England and Wasp flanker Tom Reese. Right, let's get going. Um, bit excited about this one. Some unbelievable rugby on display in the Champions Cup. There were one or two surprises, one of them being a Nick Kane prediction redemption. We'll get to that a bit later. Um, but today joining us, we have someone who has had a bit of a journey. He's gone from rugby to the intensity of the NHS front line in the form of former England back road, Tom Reese. How are you, Tom? Uh, I'm good, thank you. Lee. Is today a day off? Uh, well, it's... <laughs> So, so, so yes and no. So my I, um, Wednesday afternoons is uh, sort of a t- time off, though obviously with um, certain things going on at the moment in terms of strikes is a difficult one. But I, I'm personally I'm not striking, but this is my time off anyway. Fantastic. Well, I noticed the dartboard in in the background. Does that give yeah. you a lot on your days off? Uh, n- no, that's uh, sadly it's probably more there for show. There's a fair amount of dust uh, up by if you look closely. let's plunge straight into it because obviously your journey is a fascinating one and if you're happy to talk about it I'd love to sort of discuss the early retirement um obviously you won a European championship England English championship you were part of a squad that got to a world cup final uh and then you retired at just the age of 27 um take us straight into first of all the six months after the retirement and how, whether the groundwork was laid for you to now become the doctor that you are or whether it was, okay, what do we do now? Uh, Yeah, so I I suppose I probably have to go back a a little further and I I promise I'll spare you the really long-winded version. But I mean, so essentially rugby came up as an option for me. I never had any clue what else I was going to be doing. So it was kind of a... You know, at worst, it was sort of going to be like a gap decade. But I think, you know, it was the first thing you'd always sort of be asked is, you know, what would you be doing if you weren't if you weren't here? And I never had an answer. And both my parents were doctors. So the only thing I was ever sure of is I was never going to be a doctor. Um, <laughs> but, you know, rugby still gave me a chance to meet loads of people, see loads of different things. And I just started gravitating towards the, the physios and the medics that were patching sort of me and my teammates up each week. Um and initially, I thought when I sort of thought about it, I was like, oh, okay, actually, I'd have, I would have liked to have been a doctor, but I thought, well, I've, I've missed the boat; it's too late. Um, and then uh, Jamie Roberts sort of appeared and was doing both medicine and rugby at the same time, and it sort of made me think, oh, maybe, maybe I should start looking into this. So I, I'd started looking at what qualifications I'd need to get to be eligible and applying and all that various stuff, and I started that process around about the same time I started getting more and more injuries. So I had envisaged a world where I was going to try and do medicine alongside rugby, but when the the axe fell on rugby, I'd at that point applied to, I can't remember if I'd been accepted already or not, but you know, I had place at university. So I had then six months between sort of retiring from rugby to then starting university in, I think it was October 2012, I think. It was imperial correct me if i'm wrong was it yeah it? yeah which which was really convenient because i was i was living in ealing in west london at the time so it meant i could i didn't have to move and sort of you know the amount of sort of upheaval there'd been in my life not having to change where i was living and everything else was uh was a, a handy bonus so was it 
then, well, what I'm getting is that it was purely coincidence that you had started making plans for post-rugby just as the post-rugby process got sped up through all those injuries. Uh, yeah, I think I was probably not dissimilar to my most of my colleagues at the time. You know, you, you're sort of 18, 19, you're indestructible, you're going to have this glittering career that's going to involve trophies and, you know, umpteen caps and all these wonderful things. And, you know, at the time it was retiring your mid-30s and um, everything would be great. And it, to an extent, I think you've got to to think like that a bit because, you know, that's what sort of drives you to it. But at the same time, the reality, you know, the, I can remember from the moment it sort of started, the RPA would always be saying, look, you know, there's at least two of you in this room at the beginning of every season who will be forced to retire because of injury. And you look around, you think, well, it's not going to be me. But you know, that, that was always the case. And then... As I as I got more injuries, and it was just the realization. Well, I'm I'm going to have to do something else after rugby. You know what what would I want it to be? And I had a um, it was a chap called uh, Ben at the RPA who was sort of a player development manager, and uh, he sort of helped me just sort of look at what things that were out there, what I wanted to do, and you know, to sort of figure out how I was going to get from rugby to medicine once I'd established that that was what I'd like to do. And Imperial's a six-year course. Mm. So you must have started that at 28. So you finished that at 33, 34. Yep. Are you still in junior doctor stages now? or? Uh, yeah, I am. So uh, technically you're a junior doctor until you're a sort of a consultant or you've you know um, completed training. So I'm training to be a GP. I'm actually in my last year of GP training at the moment. Yeah, well, last year all being well, uh, which is one of the the shortest sort of training programs. So GP, you know, training is three years. So I did six years at uni, two years of foundation, which every newly qualified doctor from the UK sort of goes through foundation, where you rotate around, and then after that is the soonest you can pick a, a specialist program. They all have slightly sort of different lengths depending on the demands, um, and for various reasons, I guess you know, probably a little bit like on the rugby pitch where I was probably a bit of a jack of all trade and master of nothing. Um, you know, the GPs, I guess, are a little bit like that in, in medicine, this sort of wide expanse, that sort of very much uh, appealed. But then equally, you know, I'm now 38. Uh, the prospect of some of the training programmes of, you know, some of them could be sort of 10 years and the requirement to take time out to do a PhD or, or you know, sort of go and do fellowships abroad and all these things that I've just kind of gone actually look no I I, I don't fancy that thanks very much so Tom yeah, doing some no, math no. there that's 11 years isn't it before you sort of make the first 15 you know six years uni two years foundation three years getting your qualification and your specialization I mean obviously you've been incredibly busy throughout that period and lots of challenges but that is a long old haul isn't it you there must be some challenges to know that that is the length of time it takes you to make the first 15. Uh, yeah, and and that, even at the earliest stage within sort of at uni, was one of the things I struggled with the most. I, kind of, it was, I equated sort of a year at university was like a week in rugby. You know, if you think your exams are sort of your, you know, your game, the bit you're actually judged on, um, you know, you spend 12 months building up to that point. Yeah. As opposed, and then you know, and then you get your feedback, and then it starts again. As opposed to sort of that as a weekly cycle, where you know you're getting that sort of much more instant feedback. 
and then, and you know, to eleven years, you know, I, it would be farcical to say that oh, I'll be the I'll be the finished article once I'm sort of fully qualified. You know, there's, there's one of the, the the joys of medicine is the fact that it, it's changing, and therefore you've got to, got to constantly learn and evolve with it. Um, uh, but yes, in terms of being sort of as you say that everyone wants to get in the first team, it's equally the same sort of being beholden to a training program and potentially having to move around at different posts and all these other things that sort of come with training. It will be, it'll be nice to hopefully get to the other side of it. Knowing what you do now, Tom, do you think you mentioned Jamie Roberts um, earlier and, and Jamie was held up as a sort of bit of a Renaissance man, really, because he was everywhere. Everyone knew he was doing the medical stuff. He was, he had a, a, a sort of glittering, you know, rugby career with multiple Lions tours and all the rest of it. Um, but I think at the same time, Matthew Tate also was very keen on on going into medicine at one point. And he, he, he I think I'm right in saying that he said he, he would have found it impossible to study and play rugby in the way that Jamie Roberts did over whatever period of time that was. What's your take on it now? Had you decided to go into medicine earlier? Would you have been able to do it simultaneously or would it have been a hell of a lot to take on? Uh, I, I think having gone through it would have been an awful lot to take on. Um, I did get the chance to speak to sort of Jamie when he was sort of in the midst of it. We played uh, Cardiff in the Heineken Cup one year and it was at the time I'm you know, starting to think about it. And yeah, he, he'd said that, you know, oh, it was it was tough. And I think he, yeah, he not at all belittling you know, what he achieved I think it's it's phenomenal um but he I think he would sort of acknowledge you know he was a Welsh international at Cardiff University I think there were people there who were sympathetic to his cause and were yeah. sort of happy to, to to help him in that way and you know if I if I found someone at Imperial who was similar then then possibly but the, there's no sort of getting away in terms of you know you can kind of you know, medicine has sort of been academialized quite a bit, but essentially it's a, you know it's a vocation. You know, the the way you get better at it is experience, and to get that experience, you need to be there on the wards, seeing things and doing things. Um, and if I was going to say, well, I'm afraid my you know, my training's at two o'clock in the afternoon, so I'm going to have to pop mm-hmm. off. Um, you know that that just limits your exposure. So I, you know, that slightly fanciful idea of oh yeah, maybe I can do both. I, you know. I think it's unlikely I'd have succeeded, but equally, you know, Jamie did make it work. Um, and again, I can I seem to remember speaking to Tati about it before he sort of looked into it. And again, it, perhaps it is one of those things that's just, yeah, a little bit fanciful to try and do both. But I wouldn't want to tell anyone it was impossible. But I don't think I could have done it. I think Hallam Amos also doubled up, didn't he? Um, and he retired from rugby when he decided he had to commit full time. I mean, he, combined, he retired a little bit early, but he did start his own international rugby together for a few years. I remember dear old John Webb turning up for, for Bristol matches after after no sleep at all. <laughs> and, and indeed played like it on occasion. <laughs> um, uh, but he was, uh, I mean, that, 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 was a different, that was a different age and the demands on rugby players were, were wholly different in the amateur era, mm. obviously, um, because every, everyone was doing a job pretty much. Um, but but even in those days, I mean, John found it, and you know, he was a very able guy and remained so. But he found it incredibly difficult to keep the rugby going at the standard he wanted it to, and you know, give his best to his um, to his to his vocation. Yes, you certainly wouldn't want him operating like he had no sleep. But then, 
actually there would have been times you would have been doing that as well again because of, because of the way it worked yeah have you ever compared notes with uh, Felipe Contepomia at all uh, Tom no I haven't Nick I, I do you know what I've never um had the pleasure of meeting Felipe as far as I know, um I, I can remember I'm not even sure if we we may have crossed paths on the pitch but yeah I I, I, I think he would have been part of that there was that I think game and I was it Argentina Argentina Wales, where I think there were sort of more doctors on the pitch than there were in the pit side medical teams, or something like that. Something like that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it it does sound as if you 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 know the process that you go through, the academic process that you go through, almost does seem almost never ending. Is it the same everywhere, um, or is the UK particularly? Um, sort of are the strictures particularly great in the UK in terms of progression, if you like? Um, I suppose not having had any direct experience, difficult to say. I know, I've got lots of colleagues who have trained sort of overseas and, and come to the UK. And I think, I think, you know, historically from a kind of an academic and kind of foundation sort of science understanding that underlays all of sort of medicine, I think the UK is generally sort of pretty highly highly regarded from that yeah. perspective um i think again historically there was this essentially a, that medical training in the uk certainly in terms of the hours obviously before european working time directing thing was hard the consequence of that being the people who came through it were pretty phenomenally trained um i know some of my colleagues abroad us actually some of the surgical specialties they feel they probably actually get more opportunity to operate and i think you know most surgeons would say that uh you know your skills are based largely of how much opportunity you get to do that and so whether that's a bit of an issue in the in, in the uk now you know, you know i'm not a surgical trainee but i know overseas guys say who have done that said yeah no, we got much more chance so I think you know UK medical training is certainly held in in pretty high regard. I wouldn't want to say what it compared to sort of in the past. I think probably by virtue of the time it was possible, you know, the the time spent it was a bit higher perhaps, but it certainly holds up well. Of course, we we haven't yet mentioned the formidable Doctor Brendan Venter, um, the, the the Doctor who created his own patients. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it would, yeah. I can remember um I can remember Rob Hoadley at Wasps who'd, who'd been at Iris and just he he had bucket loads of Venter stories just you know essentially getting into getting into scraps with his own teammates in training um you know drawing blood and then taking them off to stick to stitch them <laughs> up himself afterwards so yeah. you're listening and somehow you haven't heard that Brendan Venter interview I can't remember who the opposition were but the Brendan Venter interview do go and have a listen to that because it's probably the best interview that's ever been given in a rugby game it's I won't spoil it but it's very bizarre um Tom can I indulge my own personal curiosity so I'm no stranger to a torn ACL um I've just worked my way back for my second was it your second the one that was ultimately career-ending uh, no, it was my first, though, I think, given the amount of time I spent injured, you certainly could be forgiven for thinking that I'd done it a few times. Um, no, it, I, <laughs> it was a pre-season friendly away in France, 
and I'd spent the best part of two years with uh, out following multiple sort of shoulder surgeries. I sort of I, I dislocated my shoulder. The surgery hadn't worked. So I'd had a repeat. Surgery hadn't quite worked. I had a repeat, and I finally got to a point where that was, you know, the the, the shoulder was feeling good. And I think I came on was on the pitch for five minutes and a little bit like um, those who remember the day Michael Owen did his ACL playing for England where he just went to turn around and his knee popped. Um, I did that. I, 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 I sort of crumbled over. And I think, again, partly having that sort of interest in sort of physio and medicine, I, I, I think I knew what I'd done before I'd hit the floor. And the poor physio came on to assess me, was sort of going to, you know, do all these various assessments. And I think I just swore at him and just said, well, you just test my NACL and, you know, pulled on it and, you know, my knee didn't stop where it should. Uh, and that was that. And it, it, it was a it was a strange one because I, the first sort of two months or so of the recovery, I hardly had any atrophy in my my quads at all. Like it was, go- it was going incredibly well, um, you know, the all body weight stuff. You know, you look at me and you wouldn't have thought that I'd had, you know, bar the scar, you couldn't have tell I'd had an operation. And then I started loading the knee up with weight and more dynamic stuff. And then I started getting pain. And I actually ended up getting atrophy from sort of two months onwards. And it was just getting to the point my leg was, was wasting away and I had various scans and tests and end up in front of the surgeon he just said look i'm sorry but i think you're done um so it was it it was one and done and thankfully most people who have actually you know it's be wrong to call it routine but you know people do get back to really good levels of function i just unfortunately wasn't one of them so so that's a completely random thing is it is it in a sense tom I, i mean i do remember one or two of your illustrious fellow wasp forwards had terrible injuries. I mean, I mean, Lawrence at the, at the start of Lawrence Delario at the start of the 05 um, New Zealand tour, the Lions tour in New Zealand, and that looked that looked as it was career ending. If anything well, could ever be career ending, two thousand one Lions because it, everything was pointing the wrong way. And and Simon Shaw had some shockers as well. Yeah, um, um, I think Tim Payne tore his ACL uh, there. I'm trying to remember if Richard Burkett may have done it also. We had we had a spate of Achilles tears at Wasps at one point. I think Johnny O'Connor and Craig Dowd, I think both in the same season, tore their Achilles tendons. Um, yeah. Did that spell the end for for Johnny O'Connor, or did he come back? No, he uh, Johnny. I think Johnny came uh, came back from that. Um, he moved on from Wasps sort of after the Connor, yeah, yes, back he went back to Connor, and um, but yeah, no, he definitely he, he did return from that. Mm. Was the ACL was it hamstring or patella graft? So I I had the hamstring graft, okay. um, and you say you've done it twice. Have you had both? Yeah, well, I had hamstring the first time, and then that snapped again. So I've got yeah. patella now. Same knee. Um, yeah, so I can remember. Um, so uh, Andy Williams, the um, surgeon that I think you know a lot of the sports guys go to see phenomenal bloke if you ever have the, the sort of misfortune to need to see him um and interesting he actually yeah i can't remember i think it was before he operated on my knee um had heard that i was considering medicine and allowed me allow me to do some work experience with him beforehand which was which was really helpful but um yeah they sort of sort of talk through you know from a medicine perspective often there are lots of different ways to do different things which generally means there's not necessarily a right or wrong way to do something 
Um, and but Andy said that he said generally with rugby players, the kind of the load that you put through the knee, leaving the patella intact, was potentially preferable and made recovery easier. Whereas you know for f- football, sort of the the importance of their hamstrings were lots of things that actually maybe that go that way. So it was very much trying to find the right option. But yeah, I think you know the the graft holds. I've got a, a stable knee. I've just got a knee that if I try and do too much on it, it starts giving me pain and I start getting weak and, and you know, problems arise. So in the recovery, obviously, it's usually six to nine months, especially in professional spheres. Um, you said that for the first two months, things went swimmingly. And then it was when you started to up the intensity that it started to decline. So those first two months, you were obviously working back to play professional rugby again. When was it a moment where you kind of knew in your own body or was it literally the specialist sitting with you and go and well, dropping this big bomb, so to speak? Uh, I, th- I think, yeah, and you, n- you never quite know what you're recalling as it was and what you're sort of applying your own spin on afterwards. I think that I was starting to come to, I so the fellow called um, Terry Evans was the sort of, physio slash strength and conditioning was helping me with a lot of my recovery and yeah. played professionally for football for Brentford and I recommend and there is an a, sort of an amazing bloke and I we'd been sort of you know going through this sort of rehab and you know the fact that it was getting worse you know later on in the recovery you know <laughs> wasn't a good sign um and I think again there was a Doug uh who was a, the physio at was at the time as we sort of you know did more investigation and kept sort of drawing sort of blanks as to why I think you know, people were trying to sort of plant the seed and equally you know I, I I had suspicions but at the same time I think you know that's like bloody mindedness is you, you I was never going to I was never going to necessarily say look I've had enough I think I'm done it was you know it's up to my own detriment and in a weird way it was almost sort of absolution to have the surgeon turn around and say, you know, you don't need to have sort of not not made it. E- well, yeah, I suppose it made it easy for me. It almost opened the door to allow me to walk through because I, I was miserable at, at that point. You know, I, it, you know, I did, only you've gone through the recovery. It, it, it's not much fun, even if it goes well. Um, but I was sort of felt trapped essentially going into work every day to sit and watch everybody else doing the thing that I wanted to do. You know, I, I, I enjoyed training, but the point of it all was to go and play. So I'd have to sit there and watch everybody play and I wasn't getting any closer and it was just, yeah, it, it, it was, it was easy for me to have <laughs> somebody else say at the end, I think, I think you're done. Even if I was close, I, I to realizing that I, I couldn't have taken that step myself. Yeah. And, I think that's an athlete's mindset. So that's only only inevitable, isn't it? But how did you deal then both once you'd been told no, but also when you were putting in the hard yards and just weren't getting anywhere with it? How did you deal that you mentioned the why me side of things? And you see people out on the pitch, how what were your coping mechanisms for well, lifting yourself up, maintaining motivation? And then I guess once the door had been closed on you, seeing the silver linings. Uh so I think at the at the time, I think because I'd spent the two years prior with the shoulder and 
you know, there was this, you know, initially when it happened, it was like, oh, I can't do this again. You know, it was too much. And, you know, sort of sat down and was like, well, no, I'd be miserable without rugby because I, you know, I'd been miserable with it when I'd been in injured with the other things. So if I stop, then I know I'll be miserable. Whereas if I keep going, there's a chance I get back. So that was sort of the, you know, the, the drive was to return and, you know, sort of looking back on my career now, you know, I kind of look, you know, it depends on the day, but look back with disappointment in, in a way because I I had these really lofty ambitions to go and do all these various things. And I got fairly close on a few of them and I you know, did, did things that I was sort of really proud of, but I felt, no, no, I've, I've got more to give here. I've got more to achieve. And I think that was, that was sort of what I needed to keep me going um, just as the time went on and it sort of seemed further away that sort of that as a motivator did start to weaken um, to the point where I think initially there was a there was relief in you know, to be told okay look you know you're done that was the um, I can remember coming out of the um, the consulting room Physio went off because I think yeah, boss had a game that weekend. So he had to go and hook up with the team. Um, I went into McDonald's and ordered a ordered a meal and and sat there and just I think I sent a text message to my mate saying, "Oh look, you know I'm I'm done. Thanks very much." And I, I there was this moment of relief um, that sort of then evaporated as the kind of enormity of you know I had defined myself as a rugby player and overnight that had finished and I, I found that sort of you know, I know other people have spoken in a similar language but it felt like a bereavement part of me had felt like it had died and I didn't know what to, to do with that so I, I, the next few months I you know, just tried to d distract myself but generally wasn't dealing with it particularly well and I got fortunate in the fact that medicine came along you know started and I then had a had a a purpose it wasn't the same but you know it was something to distract me and keep me occupied Tom, uh, I don't think any of us were guilty but the press certainly some in the press certainly labeled you as fec future england captain so there was a little bit of a a weight on your shoulders throughout your career and that you know a large um part of the english rugby community thought that one day you'd be the england rugby captain and very possibly for the 2011 world cup was that part of the huge disappointment or was um and that that you know that expectation that had been put on your shoulders or was was that so just a, a you know a sideshow compared with the, the big reality of having to end your career um i think there was I, I, i'd be you know i'd be lying if i if i said that oh i wouldn't have liked to have done that i mean who who, who wouldn't want that i i do think that some of that just seemed to be born out of the fact that, you know, I'd captained age group stuff. Therefore, you know, oh, he's clearly going to be a candidate. When actually, I, you know, again, I look back and I think I, I don't know how effective a captain to a men's team I would have been. You know, the, the age group sides, I was one of the better players. I was that bit older and probably more more yes, emotionally mature, if you like, than sort of the other lads. So that that was the easy thing I... I don't necessarily think I'd be have been a particularly effective captain to a to a men's team. 
I don't know because sadly when I got the chance to was I was injured the whole time and I, you know I, again I thought the easiest way to try and lead was to try and lead from the front and if I wasn't on the pitch then I wasn't doing a very good job um so I, I knew that was there and it, I thought and I at the time I probably thought well you know that's something I'd I'd like to do but equally I wanted to play multiple multiple times for England I wanted to go on a Lions tour I, you know, wanted to win more at Walsh. And that, it was more of that personal thing than the kind of the wider pressure. Um, so, yeah, the fact that I didn't do those things, you know, as I say, sometimes the, the, there's, there is disappointment there. And, you know, as I say, you know, retirement, when it comes, as, as much as it was a it is final. It is literally just, you know, the book closes. None of that's ever going to happen now. And... You know, time moves on pretty quickly. I, you know, I, I've now been retired longer than I played for. The other way, which it, it was the case, yeah, it happened. I think was it this year or the last year, and, and you know, so it's it's actually so far in the past, it's silly. Mm. But you know, you still hang on to glory days. Did you realise that yourself, or did someone tell you that? No, no, I, I, so I knew it was coming at some point. I wasn't sort of. I didn't exactly have it marked on the calendar, but that was just, you know, I get moments sometimes. You know, patients will sometimes say, "Oh, you're not the Tom Reese that used to play rugby, are you?" Or you know, you occasionally get sort of recognised, which is which is obviously a nice moment. But again, it's just realizing how, how you know time moves on. There've been so many other players that have come after me, and you know, the world keeps turning. Two, two, two questions, Tom. One, one more, one more serious than the other. The unserious question is: When you were in McDonald's that day, did you see Trevor Leota? <laughs> no, Trevor was in the KFC across the road. Oh right, okay. <laughs> that would probably have, probably have saved you a few, Bob. Um, <laughs> um, the, the, the the second question, and it's obviously, and it's a predictable question, is most of my questions are. But there's a hell of a lot has happened in a game around health and safety since since you were forced to call it a day. How do you, through that prism, where do you consider rugby to be at the moment? Um, and especially someone who played in your position, and much is said about the jackal position and its associated hazards and perils. Um, do, do you have a, a sort of a general view on, on where we are, looking at it from your, your new or newer perspective? Um, I suppose there's <laughs> there's always you know the danger of having not sort of been in the game for so long of sort of being you know out out of touch. Player says, "Oh, you know, it was you know, better in my day." Or you know, this. um, I think there's pros and cons to, to 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 all of it. I think you know it's. You want to do everything you can to make it as safe as possible for players, not just in you know the short term and the fact that you know there's livelihoods uh, attached to it, um, but the long term and and everything else that comes comes with that. But then at the same time, it's a contact sport that you know, and like most things that are either fun or worth doing, they they carry an element of risk, and I think there is a you don't want rugby to be sort of cavalier and sort of, 
no, come and play this because it's risky and that's what, you know, make it some sort of silly macho thing. But then at the same time, I don't think you can try and sort of wrap it in cotton wool and there's the danger that you take some measures that um, maybe to being overly cynical, but some measures get taken because people want to appear like they're doing the, you know, the right thing. And, you know, and all these things potentially have unforeseen consequences. Uh, you know, there was this, I did sit on disciplinary panels for a little while. And obviously there's, there was, you know, been a big push on sort of contact with the head and things like that uh, sort of quite a while ago. But I can remember looking at some of the, the data that was used behind, behind some of the decision making and thinking, well, actually most of the head injuries are happening to the tackle rather than the tackle and yet we're focusing on that yeah. and you know just yeah it, it, there are so many moving parts that you know it's not so but i i do think at the moment that there are some things that are going too far and there is the danger that it strips the, the a bit of the identity of the game away um but then equally everyone's scared of change and anything that's suggested is immediately a disaster and then who knows you know some some things could be pan out to be great for the game. I think, you know, sadly only sort of time will tell. Sure. Do you think that the uh, tackle, you know, below the sternum is, uh, is a, is a good move or um, do you, do you see that as, as a step too far? Uh, I, I, I sort of have slightly sort of mixed sort of feelings. I think as a principle trying to sort of say, no, okay, we really want to avoid, Guys getting shoulders driven into their heads, and you know, and you know, things that perhaps again, you know, the era that I was playing and 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 before that would have been sort of lauded as amazing tackles. Actually, saying, okay, look, no, that's not what we're not what we're after. I'd, I'd say there was an argument that actually a high tackle has always been a high tackle, and there have been you know punishments in place. But um, I think it's a I think it's reasonable. The the difficulty with all of these things comes in comes in the detail. In terms of, in a pick and go situation, you can't tackle someone in the sternum if the first thing coming coming at you is their head, yeah. and you have, nor should I think you have to as a defender sort of say, well, like, well, I can't tackle him because of the way he's 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 running at me. You know, is there an onus on sort of you know, say to a ball carrier? Well, if you, you know, if you're going to run at someone in that way, then there's a chance that contact with your head might occur. Um, and I think any sort of yeah, I know. I know that. I guess the the best example is the the, the Freddie Stewart sort of incident. This idea of sort of a you know a rugby incident. It, it's a contact sport. People are going to get into positions where, when you play it in super slow mo, it's going to look horrendous. But actually, at the time, it was all perfectly reasonable and wasn't done with any intent. But something bad happened as a result. And it could be a, you know throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little bit. I think with, with with some of the extent. Sorry, now I've danced around that question. I actually think saying lowering that tackle, I don't see as being a bad thing. If you apply it militantly to every situation, then yes, it could be a disaster. I know that you, you, you Tom, you don't uh, represent the BMA and so on and so forth, but uh, there are times when I think that certainly um, physical contact sports like um, rugby, union and league, and boxing tend to get 
um, a lot of attention, obviously because of the concussion uh, element and so on and so forth. But there does seem to be a, um, an attitude whereby these sports are targeted more than say something like you look at the amount of people who are who who sustain bad injuries including concussions and uh, the whole range of equestrian sport and so on and that they don't seem to get quite the same attention um from uh the the medical fraternity is that is that a, a fair criticism do you think or not uh potentially i suppose it's difficult to again we i suppose we could split hairs about what the proportional level of representation is in terms of the number of people playing different sports and you know it rugby's reasonably widely played so therefore would it get more coverage on certain things but i you know i going back to the point as you say you know look i'm not a a representative of any medical body i'm not a neurologist i you know i'm, I'm not expert in any of um the the, the details of these things but I would say as a general principle um, that, you know, the, the biggest health issues facing most Western countries and uh, you know, certainly the UK is obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all things that are consequences of a sedentary sort of, you know, un you know lifestyle and poor diet. And the fact that sport is one of the the best treatments for that is you know i wouldn't want to be discouraging anybody from doing sport the the flip side is that you know and I, the 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 concussions that you know and it, you know it's the risk of dementia that's the that's the concern bearing in mind there are people who will never touch a rugby ball or head a football or come off a horse in their life who will get dementia and equally, there'll be people who'll be sort of banged around all the time who won't. But it's, I think, dementia is such a, just such an emotionally crippling thing for someone to think about personally, but also to go through, whether it be with a, a loved one, that actually that compared to a lot of their, it's just such a stronger emotive issue. And I think that does drive certainly that conversation in terms of, other sports, I'd say probably more visibility of them that would would account to the um, the, the weight applied to things. But by and large, I'd still say that you know even though, you know if, if if a contact sport is something you want to do, then you know we should sort of encourage people to do it because there are health benefits. But as long as you know that there are health risks as well, it, it, it seems to me that rugby populate uh, rugby is in a a difficult sort of halfway house on this on this subject. So, so you you've used Nick the, the examples of boxing and equestrianism. Um, but there, there's an obvious difference between boxing, where the, the actual point, the purpose of the thing, is to knock someone's block off, and equestrian sport, where those kinds of incidents are almost, again, by definition, accidents. You don't go out there to fall off your horse and land on your head, albeit it's equally dangerous. But yeah, rugby, no, is, no, no, rugby no. is in that slight halfway house, isn't it, where where there are some pretty ugly things that can happen on the field which are deliberate. They are sins of commission. But there are also, as Tom says, rugby incidents, which are within the sort of nature of the game and the nature of the risk factor attached to the game, 
that is very, very difficult to 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 take out completely. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, without changing the nature of the game completely, I don't think that I don't I, I don't know where you go on that. That they are neither they are neither deliberate nor purely accidental. A lot of them may be just slightly reckless. And then what? Then what do you do about this stuff? I mean, it's it's rugby. Rugby is, I think, is in an area of its almost of its own here. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an it it is in an area of its own um, to a degree. But you know, I mean, look, everything is a question of choice. Now, you know, the idea of uh, you know young kids getting on the back of a quadruped that weighs, you know, five times their weight or six times their weight, and they, you know, they jump over barriers and so on and so forth, that is a risk element. And it's a significant risk element. You know, people are going to come off horses. Some of them aren't going to be injured. Some of them are. And all I'm saying is, is that it's very, very important that rugby doesn't get you know, ghettoized in this in this area where it is seen as being too dangerous, and there is an element at the moment where rugby is talking itself into a cul-de-sac in some ways. Well, I would take an edge. Got a class action on its back. That's why, and that does tend to concentrate a few minds. Yeah, but it's a cla- it's interesting because it's a class action. You know, I mean, I don't know what 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 your uh, read is on it, but it's a class action which, at the moment is um you know is is stymied to a degree because you know part of the medical um knowledge that's needed can only be obtained from people who are deceased <laughs> so you know i mean there are serious issues with the class action as well oh, I, oh i'm sure i'm sure that's the case nick but but, but the, the the problem is um it, it, it's a it, it, public relations is a stupid way to put it but, but world rugby and associated authorities are in a difficult place if you have 300 of former players pointing in this direction and world rugby is going to find it very difficult to say no you're wrong that's that's quite mm-hmm. tough that's not a good look for any organization so they're going to have to tread incredibly carefully i think in dealing with this. and it may well be that this never reaches um yeah um, a, a, a public hearing of any size or scale. Um, you know, who, who knows how this will unfold? It's a, it's a, it's a long story. This one, and we're only at the start of it. But it's, it, it does concentrate minds. It certainly concentrated minds in American football, um, and it cost them an awful lot of money. And as we know, rugby doesn't have. And Tom played for wasps. For God's sake, rugby, rugby and money don't naturally go together. Is as as they do in some other bigger, wealthier sports. And I, I guarantee you, more certainly people, not in the current climate. More kids will have broken limbs and knocked their heads in the last two weeks skiing on school hol- skiing holidays abroad than ever have done that playing rugby. And like you say, Nick, not they won't hear a word about that. Um, and the consequences can be down the line. You know, a, a head knock's a head knock, whether it's a fourteen-year-old skiing lad. You know going off piste and, and smashing himself up and laughing it off at the time. That's exactly the same uh, as rugby. And there'll be way more broken limbs and done, you know, busted knees just in the last 10 days, skiing holidays at Easter, than ever there will be um, playing rugby. So 
I, I agree with all of you. I mean, rugby's got to get the got to get balance right here, but it's also got to get got to get it in proportion. It really has got to get it in proportion um, and set it up against the other schools. You know, we need to get the stats lined up against all the other sports. We need to see really how dangerous or not rugby really is. Um, I'd like to see the stats on that, and they need to be agreed stats that are comparable. For the sake of time, I'm going to suggest that we do, Tom, we do your random rugby 15, the quick fire question section, if you're happy with that. Sure. Yep. Right. We'll go straight in. Nickname. Oh, many. Uh, none of them particularly complimentary necessarily. I think the one that stuck the most would be robot. <laughs> I don't remember that one. Yeah, I read about that one. Do you want to tell us about Robot and where it came uh, from? So Robot was born. So uh, James Haskell and I joined Wasp at the same time. Obviously, James is James and always has been. So he was obviously sort of quite loud. And I think knew the guys very well. I, I was pretty quiet and kept to myself when I started. And when I think some of the, the players asked Haskell sort of what I was like, never one to miss an opportunity, he created a story that uh, I had entered into Robot Wars um with my dad and we'd built a robot and submitted it and probably more a reflection on me than on james quite a lot of them believed it um <laughs> so uh robot stuck though he, he did also try to convince them that at one point i was one of the milky bar kids in the advert and that one didn't take so <laughs> <laughs> best rugby memory um so i, I I always sort of have a toss up between uh, sort of you know, winning the Heineken Cup with Wasps and um, my first start for England, which was against France and the Six Nations. Those are the the two sort of you know, playing things that stick with me the most. Most embarrassing rugby memory. I sort of str struggle with this. It, just partly because there's so many uh, so many things that were sort of embarrassing in terms of managing to throw a sort of three-metre three pass over somebody's head in order to put them into score for the Wasps A-team, you know, and just silly things like that. But there were, uh, thankfully, I've not got anything that has scarred me so badly that I've been able to, to pull out just one. We've not even played with James Haskell. <laughs> the the pleasure of playing with and training with and just sharing time with James uh, will be something I take to my grave. As a as a pleasure, it was you know he he uh, gets unfairly maligned on lots of things. You know, it's I, I was blessed to be around James. Um, you know, as I said, there, there was there was good and bad, but the, the good far, far outweighed the bad. Pre-game tune. So I never really listened to music for a game. We 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 didn't at Wasp as a team. Some guys would have headphones. I'd actually read a book, and it wasn't anything specific. And, and again, this isn't painting me as a picture of anything other than a, <laughs> a very dull man. Um, I, I didn't need to try to amp myself up before a game. I just wanted to try and keep a lid on that. And I found the easiest way to do that was to do something that I that would just occupy me and, and stop me thinking about rugby until I was ready to get into it. So I'd, I'd normally sit there and read a book. 
the robot nickname starting to make sense now. <laughs> Post game meal. Uh large Domino's pizza, tub of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and a bottle of Coke. Excellent choice. Well, that's uh, Leota esque. <laughs> I learned from the master. Oh. <laughs> Best player you played against. Oh, um, so I I got to play against at different times Schultberger, George Smith, and Richie McCaw. So for as a an open side, you know, play to play against those three was massive. And um, the player I think I learned the most playing against, if you like, actually was Martin Williams. It was a wasp game against Cardiff where. I ran around like a blue-ass fly the whole game doing my damnedest, and every time I picked myself up, he seemed to be running off in the opposite direction with the ball with almost what seemed like minimal effort on his part, and that that was a real eye-opener for me. I I was there that day. I covered that game for the Independent, and I remember speaking to you afterwards, and you you were very honest about how much Martin had had taught you. You you took that as a real learning curve, didn't you, that game? I I think... I can't remember exactly the, the year, but I, I I remember it as being relatively early in my career, but I was starting to kind of make a name. I was this sort of dynamic young player and I sort of realising that just trying harder wasn't necessarily going to cut it. You actually had to be clever about these things. And, you know, and yeah, Martin certainly taught me that on that day. Best play you've played with? Um, I got... I think in a maybe in a preseason friendly game to play with Rob Howley when he was at the tail end of his career at Wasps, and I think as a yeah as a player, I'd have said Rob Howley was probably as good a player as ever in terms of more throughout my career. I think in terms of just absolute ability, Danny Cipriani is probably the most talented player that I ever ever played with. Favorite player right now. Uh, I know you sort of picked up some sort of knocks that didn't feature so much in the Six Nations, but the last few years, whenever I've watched Hamish Watson, I've always been really impressed. Now, I appreciate that's just probably as a an old open side sort of, uh, you know, appreciate that, but actually I've really enjoyed watching Hamish Watson play. Rugby Idol. Uh, never had a, a specific... One, um, but again, grew up watching Bat Hill Delalia. So, you know, again, as a, as a bat rower, that was about as good as it could get. Favourite stadium? Uh, you know, I only ever played there once, and I, I hopefully you'll, so one of you will know the name of it. It basically played against Perpignan away in the Hyden Cup one year. And I can remember going to the, you know, their stadium, so, yeah, France, this cauldron of passionate fans and the the stands were all raised up from the pitch so it was like playing down in a, a, a bowl and it was just had this real sort of sense of a of a proper small intense town rugby stadium and I actually, I really like that that was, was that a the... game there were 17 sightings Tom I think I was there is it uh, uh, it was a very uh, dirty match I had 13 uh, sightings one bloke got four sightings and you had four I think <laughs> it was a, it's where Rob Howley got his injury that eventually ended his career, wasn't it? Uh, well, that that might have been that might have been before because I think we I can't remember if actually we went back there after that 
game. You did. You played them a few yeah, times. Something good win, yeah. the one that had all the sightings. Yeah, no, I'm fairly sure we lost them, the one that I was involved in. <laughs> so it may have been a later one, but I just... For for an atmosphere in a small ground, I remember thinking that that was it was it was amazing. Is that the yeah. Stade Aimé Giral? It is, yeah. It is, yeah. Uh, there you go. Thank you. You filled in my ignorance. Yeah, I, I looked it up under the table. It's okay. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I saw your eyes going down, Chris. <laughs> uh, favorite gym exercise? Uh, squat. Was. Can you still squat with the knee? Um, I can, though <laughs> nowhere near as much weight on my back, which again is probably a good a good thing for my back as well as for my knee. Occupation if rugby didn't exist, well, <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose I've. <laughs> do, do you know the odd thing is I probably wouldn't have been a doctor if well exactly that's without so rugby so in a weird way it w- would have been something else but yeah i still to this day have no idea what i'd have ended up as um i don't think i'd have been a doctor if i hadn't done rugby first can you hazard a guess what seems remotely appealing um well it, i suppose i should probably just end up proving james right and end up doing something like computer engineering or something like that but I, I, I never had i never had any interest in anything like anything like that um no i'm sorry i'm drawing, I'm drawing an absolute blank all, all i can think of is i'd like to be a golf professional or something at the moment so i don't think i'd have managed that either james whitcomb said he'd like to be a professional darts player so we'll take professional golfer um where am i superstitions none Never, never, never went in for it. The closest I came was I can remember watching. Uh, I what I loved Gladiator, the film when it came out. You know, no, I'm not alone in that. But to the point where I sort of watched it with the director's commentary on to hear about you know some of the things that Ridley Scott had done with it. And one of the things that Maximus does before any before he's about to go into any battle is he will pick up some of the dirt from the ground and rub it through his hand. And the the thought was it was him as a farmer just sort of connecting himself to the earth ahead of what he was going into. And I I liked that as an idea. So before kickoff, I would just pick up a few blades of grass and rub them through my hands. But it wasn't sort of wasn't superstition as such. It was just a like, right, okay, and now we go. Yeah, I like that. That's you cool. didn't follow um follow Rob Howley's example and salute magpies. <laughs> Uh, no, no. I, so I, I don't know if it's a Welsh thing or a scrum half thing, but I, I lived with uh, Warren Fury um, for, for several years when, who, who was at Wasps. And he um, also seemed to be sort of very super magpies. Uh, you know, he would have to touch wood if anyone said anything tempting fate and being sat in the physio room at Wasps where the only bit of wood was the door frame at the entrance people would play games of just seeing how many times they could force him to get up and walk across the room to get touch the wood to steal his uh, unease at whatever had been uh, whatever had been said. You'd have trouble picking up a bit of dirt if you had to play on that crappy Saracens plastic pitch. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Well, it's a point. Yeah, in the, in the days of um, you know three G and four G pitch, what would I do? I, I mean, I, I assume I'd just put some of the rubber crumb through my hands. I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's not the same somehow, Tom, is it? No. <laughs> Rugby law, you would change. I get rid of the video referee. Okay, leave it to human error. 
best thing about working in rugby? Um, I got paid to do my hobby. I think you know, I don't think anything can get better than that. Yeah, that's quite simple and pragmatic. Fantastic. Thank you for doing that, Tom. Um, now, before I reckon we do a little bit of discussion around the England back row, just while we've got you here. Um, and before we do the kind of natural feeder into that is someone who I was expecting you to say was your favourite player right now and you didn't, which is Jack Willis, um, who you've probably heard the comparisons because, you know, Wasps upbringing, both out and out sevens, both builders, you know, a future long, long-term holder of England seven shirts. Let's talk about his ACL injury back in 2021. I don't know if you were watching that day, um, but when... Yeah. He did his ACL. How did you feel, both on a self-reflective point of view and from a you know Jack Willis point of view? Yeah, well, I mean, I yeah, you're right. I should have mentioned Jack actually in in, in that favorite player, and you know, I got to meet him as I was on the way out at what he was just just starting out, and again, I think you know he has a something. Presence about him, even then, you thought, okay, this this guy is, uh, you know, has got something about him. And and at the time, he was recovering from an ankle injury, I think, um, and had had some hiccups. But again, was kind of, I, I think, I was putting contact with him essentially as, look, here's someone else who's gone through setbacks with injury. You know, can you can you give him anything? I've, you know, I hope it was helpful for him at the time. But um, yeah, that. I remember watching that and just, I think you know, the fact that you could hear him cry out, you know, you knew it, it wasn't going to be good. So the fact that he's, you know, got back to the level he has done is hugely impressive. I think there's, there is a sense that whilst, you know, you can do so much in terms of what could have ended a career sort of 10, 15 years ago, there's the danger that people think the recovery is almost routine and you know, so the the work he'll have put in will have been huge. Um, so to see him sort of come back and kind of start to really achieve the sort of you know, some of the recognition that he he, he deserves it is great. Um, again, there's the old player, and having got it, you do worry for you know <laughs> have those serious injuries early on. What's it going to do to him later? But you know, equally, he may be able to get through. Uh, the, the future without any problems, and it, he's is it Toulouse now. Is that am I right? He signed, signed for three years today. So, uh, today, fine, great. And today. again, you know, that, that ignoring kind of you know the, the the wider politics of what that means for selections and things in terms of him as a rugby player playing out there is only going to help him. You know, experiencing different things. So. Um, yeah. See, sorry, Ollie, going back to your actual question. Yeah, seeing that. I just really, really felt for him because there's that that sense of is he going to be someone who's not going to get the chance to realise what he's capable of, and actually it looks like he, you know, he he will do, which is great. Could, could I just ask you on, on, on this surgery? I, I mean, obviously, I mean, you've you just said you put you put a bit of dis distance between yourself and, and 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 rugby in in recent months and years, but we, you know, the reason Jack's into lose. Is obviously what happened to the club. Now you you were, you know you you were part of one iteration of that extraordinary wasps sense of collectiveness and um, and and connection and togetherness 
which allowed them to achieve punch miles above their weight, if you want to measure it by financial resources and various various other measures of, of what makes a successful rugby side. To what extent does your, I mean, your heart must bleed, Tom, um, to think, to, to look at what's happened to the club in, in recent months? Uh, yeah, absolutely gutted. I mean, I, I, you know, I know that, well, I, I, I've not sort of followed the ins and outs. I know that, or what I understand is that, you know, they're down to resume playing as of, of next year. I, I don't know what that will look like. Um, I, I hope with all my heart that it's a, it's a success. The, um, you know, the, there was the slightly sort of selfish thought at the time of, um, you know, I, I've got a, a young son now, sort of coming up to two years old. And there was this moment of realisation that at some point in his life, someone's going to turn around to him and say, oh, your dad used to play rugby for Wasps. And and he would turn around and go, who are they? You know, just that the, they, they didn't exist. And again, for having sort of been at that one club for that one time, it's like, oh, okay, so, you know, that again, that sense of identity I had as being part of that, even if I wasn't act- actively involved, the fact that that sort of came to an end, it's like, oh, it feels like yet more of what I'd lost is just being sort of stripped away. But that sort of, you know, that's that, that you know, that that's history. It's kind of neglecting the fact that you know, the the people whose jobs it were who were still there who lost some of the supporters that traveling to see them for decades and seeing you know loads of players here that all that was potentially gone so my only hope is that it it can return in in some way shape or form the last thing i want to ask you tom is about the england back row and obviously jack willis is the feeder into that um basically just what would your england back row be at the moment presuming everyone's fit is jack willis your seven how does Tom Curry then fit into that equation? Do you think Alex Dombrandt cut it at eight in the Six Nations? Yeah, just give us your two cents. Um, I suppose I'd be biased slightly in the sense of of, of Jack, just sort of having had a slightly more sort of direct involvement and in that was connection. But yeah, I, I I do think that he's fantastic and would look to have him there. Um, I think. Don Brandt seemed to get a fair amount of stick, I think, sort of t- towards the end of the uh, uh, the tournament, and I didn't necessarily think it was all sort of entirely entirely fair. Um, obviously, yeah, both Curry's uh, are great players, but yeah, Tom sort of in particular. The the thing that I think overrides all of it, and it'll be really interesting to see how. Steve Borthwick sort of takes this forward is I think that for so long the England rugby team or, or so often throughout its history will pick the best players who have been playing in whatever way for their clubs but then want them to change what they're doing to fit a way that England plays and actually not picking to, to strengths. Um, whereas I feel you'd be far better served to sort of say, okay, well, we've got a guy who does this and he's the best, but it's not what we want the team to do. So therefore, we're not, he's not going to have them involved. Or equally, we need to alter our plans to accommodate. So w- whatever. Um, I think the back row at the moment, again, it's an, an old-fashioned thing of having sort of slightly more designated roles and having 
you know, everybody's got to be able to do everything, but having someone who really is that dynamic ball carrier, someone that is that sort of thief over the ball, someone who's going to sort of pop up and link out out with the backs, and I just feel as good as all of them are, maybe those little roles aren't quite so well defined and, and, and perhaps that's just the nature of the game now and it's not required, but I still think there is a value to having that little extra extra skill set. Um, I think Jack at, would be at seven because I think he is phenomenally good over the ball. Um, at eight, you know, having said that you want someone who's a big ball carrier, obviously Billy sort of has, has sort of done that role sort of most recently. Um, but again, thinking thinking ahead, where you know where's that going to come from? So I don't have any sort of specific feelings, but I feel as a back row sort of unit again, if there can be some sense of identity of who's going to do what in those positions and what you're looking to get out of them, I think that would be helpful. But as I say, you know, it, it'd be interesting to see what what Steve does with it. A lot of it may change, of course, when Zach Mercer gets back. Yeah, because he's. He's got carrying and he's got footwork and he's bigger than he was and he does get over the ball. I mean, we, we you know we haven't seen him in the England context for a while, but um, he may he may certainly shift the dial. He'll, he'll be in the conversation, that's for sure. It just depends at what point. And Tom Willis as well. I've lost track. Uh, yeah, of he's going to be playing next season. Yeah, and, and, and if you were Borthwick, would you would you say to yourself, or would the RFU say to Steve, you can pick a Jack Willis, even though he's just signed for three years into lose, but you can't pick Mercer because he's not yet come back and fulfilled his obligations to king and country. So there, there is a very strange. There's there, there's it's a bit it's a bit of a, a bugger's muddle. Basically, I mean, it, 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 what, it'd be such a novel concept, wouldn't it, that you could just pick the players that you wanted to play? Oh, <laughs> I mean, I agree no, to no, no. oh well, if you're going to oh. be all, if you're going to oh, get, I mean, all, uh, if, if you're going to be all radical on us, Tom, then yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sure there are lots of very very good reasons as to why you can't, but I'm sure you could find a way to make it work. Well, well your old mate Haskell made 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 this precise argument, didn't he? Because he 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 went through his globe trotting spell and and came back i mean um, an enriched player mm. and, and and made a pretty significant contribution actually to uh to england after his time with the uh, highlanders um and and also in in france i mean i mean the old travel broadens the mind a bit i mean zach mercer is going to come back a whole lot better player um um after his after his time in montpellier than, than he was when he was yeah, at yeah. he was pretty good when he was at god yeah yeah i i i don't know. I don't again. I don't know if it's a peculiar British thing or English thing. You know, you you, you look at football. Obviously, you know, the Premier League celebrated as being sort of you know best football league in the world. But see you know, how many. You know, there are obviously good English players within it, but equally, there's lots of players there who are going back and playing incredibly well for their respective countries. Why would the same thing you know not apply? Um, I suppose if. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say, is it you know, we haven't got enough forever, couldn't you, about sort of you know, centralized contracts and all that sort of stuff? I mean, it's yeah, it's a funny one. I, 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 I tell you what, Ollie, going, I'm gonna backtrack just because it's something I just always sort of come back to and think that question rules of rugby, it's not so much of rugby, um, or, sorry, laws of rugby, the referees be having my head if it's calling them the rules, 
The other thing I'd do apart from the video ref is I would change age groups to by weight. I don't, yeah, I know it would cause all sorts of upheaval and problems at schools and organizations, but in terms of if you wanted to have more skillful rugby players down the line, you get kids playing against kids of this of a similar size rather than of a similar age. Wow, that's good. That would be a hell of a rev revolution. As with New Zealand, that's yeah. just yeah. largely. Well, and New Zealand have got some of the most skillful rugby players yeah. going, and 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 why? You know, it's not like the climate there is sort of you know, they're <laughs> constantly playing in the sun all the time. You know, they're the most skillful. Why would you not look at what they're doing and and consider adapting it? So, so much of age group rugby has basically been based around giving it to the big kid, doesn't it? And, and I'm a I'm a September birthday, so I was older than. I was older than most of the kids in my team. I was that bit bigger. And what starts out at just an arbitrary difference by virtue of size, you you know, if you're good at something, you enjoy it more. So you do it more. Your coaches probably pay more attention to you, even if they go on 10 times, and you get better. So you know, then by the time you're older and the, the the kid who then subsequently has grown a grown a foot hasn't been playing or, you know, it, it's... Yeah, yeah, dead right. Dead right. Just to come back to the point about um, the uh, you know England players not being eligible for England if they go uh, to somewhere like France, I mean you look at the double standard. It's the Premiership that is pushing this agenda that England players should only play in the Premiership, and yet if you look at their marquee players or the players that they're signing, they're taking players from other countries you know, the, who are available to their countries and and yet won't do the same for England players. And it doesn't make any sense at all. It's a double standard. By the same yardstick, my Nick, I, I can't remember an England coach. Um, Brian Ashton is possibly the exception who hasn't wanted 20 times as much time with the England players than he has when he started. Brian used to say, I'm sick of the sight of them and I wish they'd all go to the pub or whatever. I mean, Tom played under Brian and he, he, he came in a variety of things from a slightly different angle. But it is true that, that successive England coaches of, and, and Eddie Jones would be a classic example, wanted bags of time with players. I don't know, I don't know what they do with all the time. God knows Tom would have been in camp. Um, uh, um, you know, I haven't any, been anywhere near an England camp. What do you do all week? Um, I mean, it's, especially if, if, if it's a second week. Or a or a third week. I mean, is I mean the old jokes about Clive Woodward and meetings about meetings. Um, um, does that sort of strike you as true? Uh, I, so I I know there was a degree of that. You know, it could it. Um, you know, there were I think there were some things that sometimes on a schedule to fill the time. Um, in partly just because you had a load of you know young men cooped up in a hotel getting bored you know so it was just something to 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 try and occupy you i think uh you know people are always able to find distractions and not necessarily always the best the best ones and the, you know you could get into the, the trouble could ensue but <laughs> um yeah what what do you do with the time i it was tough because there were there was this element of okay well, if you're not yeah, and not to say this was from the the management, but as a player, it's like, oh, yeah, if I'm not relaxing when I'm not training, then I'm not preparing for my next thing. And so, yeah, computer games and you know, just hanging around, chat, chat with the lads, and you know, that was 
that was fun. It didn't didn't necessarily sort of achieve or advance anything, but that was just a way of dealing with with, with the time. Um, I guess there's never you know, there's never going to be any sort of you know sort of perfect setup, is there? But um, yeah, I'd certainly lock <laughs> locking rugby players up doesn't tend to end up. Yeah, you know, well, you know, particularly if there's a, a pub or a bar nearby, someone will find their way there. Tom, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. It's turned into a, a mammoth episode, as I kind of expected it to be. Um, but it's been absolutely phenomenal hearing about your journey from back row to front line, um, to use a cliche that you've probably heard quite a lot. Um, and yeah, I wish you all the best and thank you so much for all the great work you're doing as well. Well, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I would say that that is my job now. So, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, so it sounds silly to say you're welcome. But uh, look, thank, thanks for having me on. It's been um, nice to remember that, you know, I used to be a professional rugby player once upon a time. <laughs> thanks, Tom. That was, that was brilliant, Tom. Thanks very much. Yeah, Good nice to see you all, guys. Again. Hope you're all well. Take it yeah. easy. Cheers. That was really good. That was you really. You could almost leave yeah. it as a standalone Tom episode. Yeah, yeah. That was that was really good. That that was that was a big loss for England. You know. Yeah, it, it was. was the FEC, wasn't he? He was going. He got for sure, for sure. At least one, if not two, World Cup campaigns. Really. He was. He was. He was. He was a very, very good player. You know. I mean, he was adding to his game because you just tell from the conversation. He he thought his way through rugby in a way that the very best players do. Yeah, it's terrific, and he's a wasp as well, Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There you are. There you are. Did you think your way through rugby when you were playing number seven at Wasp, Nick? Were you a thinking man seven, or were you um? Bish, bash, Einstein, boy. Einstein of seven. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Chris? You didn't what get to play seven, did you? Were you? What? You were. You were a six, weren't you, mate? What? <laughs> He's frozen in time. The theory of negativity. <laughs> Just for the last 10 minutes, we'll scan through the weekend of Champions Cup action. It was three or four days ago now, admittedly. Um, we predicted a win for one English team this time last week on the Rugby Paper Podcast. We weren't right about too much else, with the exception, of course, of Nick Kane, uh, who was the only one to predict a La Rochelle win and has achieved some level of redemption following his deplorable predictions title defence. How does that feel, Nick? <laughs> it's gone from deplorable now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're on a hot horse now, so I've got to kind of kick you off it, you know. It, feel, it, 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 feels, um, it, it feels absolutely rede like redemption, yeah. <laughs> Not quite. Not quite. La Rochelle, I think, were... Uh, I was surprised that none of, none, nobody else went with them. Um, because I, I think that that game against Gloucester, Gloucester played out of their skins in that game, and La Rochelle were uh, asleep at the wheel, apart from the last few minutes where they pulled a try out, out of the hat. But I didn't see them, um, you know, playing like that two weekends on the trot. Yeah. I thought Sarah's were asleep at the wheel as well, though, Dick, because having seen Gloucester keep it fast and loose and do everything possible to avoid yeah. a clash with the La Rochelle back, Saracens just did the exact opposite. They took them on mano a mano and lost. You know, it was yeah. a pretty dull performance from Saracens. 
Yeah, it was surprising, you know, I mean, and and confirmed that they are still, you know, building and, uh, you know, back to where they were and have got a, and have got a way to go. Yeah. And, and even I, though they're I, I sitting also, pretty at the top of the premiership, you know. I also think it's the case that Saracens, I, I, I know that they, you know, against Ospreys, for example, they reeled in, they reeled in a deficit pretty effectively. But I still think they're a better front-running side Saracens. Um, and and once they're, once they're, once they're chasing the game a little bit against really really strong opposition, that's that's where they struggle. That's where they struggle. Well, they're not really a pull the rabbit out of the hat side, are they? No, no. It, it's I, I and there, there were three or four of those La Rochelle players who just absolutely would. I mean, Bugatti the hooker. How well did he play? It's absolutely phenomenal. And as for, as for the great, the great Fijian on the open side flank, who gave who gave Saracens a hurry up on his own. Yeah, yeah, Ab- absolutely brilliant, Bottier. Yeah, on 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 Sunday, he's a, he's a remarkable player. Has yeah. never yet started a test match at flanker. Has played all his games at the centre for Fiji. That's how good he is. No, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah he's, he's also he's also got a Nick Kane moustache. Yeah, which, which 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 makes him a sort of nineteen seventies. Um, Tom Sally. Oh, well, <laughs> what was that, Lenin? <laughs> Nick, did you ever think you'd be physically compared to Lavani Bossia? Uh, I'm delighted to be. <laughs> <laughs> Very chill. Um, You're having a great yeah. week, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, you made our predictions look a little bit silly. Um, not the biggest shock of the weekend for me. The biggest shock, and Chris, we were talking about this before we started recording, was Exeter being so good, but also the Sharks. And this is obviously the second South African loss of the weekend. The Sharks being so bad. You can get, you can go back on that and say the storm is being so bad. Yeah. Oh, it's entirely up to you, Oliver. Um, um, I will do that. Leave it in. No, no, that. leave it in. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, my, um, I haven't, I haven't stopped shedding tears of grief on behalf of the South African sides who are now bleating like hell. Well, maybe not the South African sides themselves, but certainly the people who follow them about about the the iniquities of long distance plane travel and lack of preparation and this that and everything else i mean what complete nonsense it is nonsense they were really poor the stormers and it had nothing to do with the flight and actually exeter played extremely it played extremely well and um uh but i i i think that uh the stormers performance if it if if they do feel that they lack preparation that is that is a fundamental central part of having the South Africans in a European tournament. So they kind of have to put up with that. There's no yeah. way there's no way around that stuff. So um so so you either do it and you do it with good grace, or you think that it's not a very good idea to be here at all and and leave Europe to the Europeans. Um uh, I, I was amazed, given, given the standard of their personnel, I was amazed how poor they were. Really, very poor. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it was like chalk and cheese, wasn't it? You know, I mean, the Stormers looked totally and utterly unlike the side that had played Harlequins in Cape Town the week before. Bordering on the disinterested. Bordering on where, the... where they were extremely sharp 
and you know overwhelmed harlequins really uh, physically i mean this time round i mean uh, their scrum on 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 certain on reputation should have destroyed that exeter scrum oh. you know but old franz malherb looked as if he'd been you know he'd had a tranquilizer dart fired into yeah. him before the game you know i mean he he just wasn't wasn't there and most of them weren't and it was a second string exeter front row a second yeah. string exeter front row and by the time they eventually uh, got into the game which was probably about 58 minutes into it the game had gone yeah. and exeter i guess you know i mean i i i thought the stormers would win um and i i, I thought what you've seen with exeter is a squad finally coming together at the tail end of the season for a last hurrah, you know, for guys who've been, you know, brought through the whole system there, really rising to the occasion. I mean, and, and a, six days after that marathon against Montpellier as well, which they were lucky to get through. There's no question about that. I mean, they've, they've ridden the, uh, the rails in this tournament and uh, got themselves to a semi-final. And they are capable, you know, there's no question, you know, that they, they, they've got some confidence now and they are capable of, uh, of, of definitely troubling La Rochelle, but I don't think that they've quite got the clout. And I mm. think that if La Rochelle are allowed to scrummage and they'll want to scrummage, then Exeter have got an Achilles heel there that um, that that without Mathieu Reynal refereeing that they'll probably be able to exploit. Um, I thought that the that the that the Sharks' performance for almost an hour against Toulouse was absolutely turbocharged, you know, and and the try that Grant Williams scored uh, was just magical, you know. Yeah. I mean the speed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got DuPont on the field, and he had an outstanding game again. But you saw this guy. <laughs> I mean, he looked. He made everybody look else look as if they were in slow motion. I mean, the speed with you know that he came in onto that support line to score that try was something else. And great it, was, it was credit to Sharks. They actually drew out of Toulouse their A game, their five star A game in the final twenty minutes. Because they could have lost that match at, at 55, 60 minutes still. They just yeah. hit the button, didn't they, to lose? Like only to lose and one or two others can. And it was good night, Josephine. But they, they were terrific for 55 minutes, Sharks. Um, and, you know, you just got the felt there might be a, an upset. But, um, you know, that th they drew that stellar performance out of Toulouse. And, uh, you know, don't poke the bear. Well, th th this might be a discussion for uh, for another day because I think it's worth talking about. But you mentioned Dupont. At what point is this bloke <coughs> going to just have a bad run? A bad run. He's he's had a slightly less good run, but that's a different thing from a bad run. I mean, if if he's if he's five percent off his game, he's still ten percent better than any scrum half in the world. I mean, the bloke is he is Gareth Edwards incarnate. Absolutely, he's got the Gareth Edwards instincts, and those of us who were just about old enough to have seen Edwards play in his pomp, those support lines he runs. And that just that general rugby opportunistic instinct that he has allied to an abnormal strength, especially around the, in the sort of hips area. 
he is a remarkable, remarkable player. And we're, we're, we're lucky to be sitting here watching this bloke play because he's one of the greats, you know. I think he was five assists, wasn't it, on the day? There was it's almost astonishing. nothing that happened without Dupont involved. And, and you pray to God that he's... I mean, he appears pretty indestructible at the moment, but Tom Reese was talking about rugby players feeling that they're indestructible. You pray to God, and I'm touching bits of wood now because I do have the odd superstition, that he that nothing happens to him that that that, that compromises his career because he is he will be one of the all time greats no so doubt it'll be, it'll be interesting because another player who's just hit a golden streak um, that's just so bright and brilliant is uh, is Ramos you know who 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 doesn't doesn't exactly look like the sort of um, you know the flair fullback and so no. on and so forth, but he's so incredibly effective. And mm. um, we saw just a flash as well of Intermac with his triple dummy try <laughs> of coming back into form. So those who feel that um, you know that that you know another Dublin uh, home game for Leinster is you know makes the semi-final a done deal I, I think that this will be very different to last year's uh, semi-final I'm not I saying I certainly that... wouldn't say that's a done that's a done deal I think <laughs> to lose a handsomely equipped to, uh, to to win the game that's not to say they will but it, it's it, it's a it's a heck of a prospect it's, just be... a, it's a fantastic it, it, it's a fantastic uh, fixture isn't it because oh, yeah. they're two sides right you know, who looking right at the top of their game at the right time, which probably means it'll be a dud semi-final, but there you go. No, 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 it won't be. Just a very quick one on DuPont. I saw a a statistic on Twitter the other day, so, you know, uh, we can't take it as absolute gospel, but it was claiming that DuPont at the age of 28 has played as many minutes of professional rugby as Johnny Sexton at the age of 37, which uh, is a fairly extraordinary... I suspect it's not far wrong. You know, he's 26. He's just ever present for everybody. Yeah, well, Dupont never injured except that one ACL he had, and that most of that was during the the, the off season. Been playing senior rugby for Castro since he was 17. He's just a metronome in terms of physically turning out and starting games. Well, Dupont has the advantage over Section is that in insofar as he is committed to playing away from home. Well, he's, he just loves getting on the pitch, doesn't he? He doesn't really need to protect in Dupont. So it appears, and and captaincy and what have you doesn't it's, it's, mm. it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to weigh him down at all. I mean, it, it's he it, it just looks like a a bloke who's completely in command of his gifts. Who it, 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 almost it's not autopilot. It can't be autopilot uh, clearly, but he's. He's completely in command of, of the things he can do and just gives you the impression of being a bloke who's loving every minute of it. Yeah, every yeah. minute of it. Fabulous. Fabulous to watch. Let's, I know the semifinals are still a couple of weeks away, um, but obviously that Toulouse-Leinster, or Leinster-Toulouse, sorry, is, I mean, it's Ireland versus France incarnate in a lot of ways. And a, another barometer for the World Cup. Can I get your semi-final predictions two and a half weeks out? Nick, we'll come to you as the reigning champ for the Champions Cup predictions. Um, Just your I two take, winners. Take um, La Rochelle to win at home. And I would take to lose 
to win in Dublin. Okay, not what I expected you to say. Might have an old French final. Chris, I think I think La Rochelle will win. Um, I think Exeter brilliantly, brilliantly though they've done a, a little bit callow in in some positions, um, and that showed against Montpellier. It didn't show so much against the Stormers, but then the Stormers didn't really turn up for a big chunk of the game as we discussed. So I certainly think La Rochelle. Especially with Aldrich in the in the form he is, um, you know he's 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 back to his best, and uh, you know Bottier is a bit of a force in nature. Yeah, they're well equipped to win that game, especially in France, even though it's not in La Rochelle itself. The other game I find is unpickable, unpickable. Um, I think I think Sexton's absence loads. The, the dice marginally more in favour of Toulouse than might otherwise have been the case because I think Sexton is such a, a totem and we've yet to see, to my knowledge, Leinster in this competition under real heat, real heat. Um, and quite how they cope with that without without Sexton, not just his skills, but also his, his refereeing abilities. Um, which are, if not quite Sean Fitzpatrickian, are certainly getting there. Um, so I, I think Leinster, I can see Leinster missing him uh, in in that game, uh, and that by definition means that Toulouse have uh, a, an even stronger shout than they already have. So I'm going to go with Nick. I can see, I can see Toulouse winning the game. I can see Toulouse winning the game. I know somebody who can't. <laughs> <laughs> and here he is <laughs> well, I don't know I think I'd be up there amongst the biggest Toulouse fans on the planet uh, yeah. La Rochelle almost certainly um, I think they've probably had their wobble haven't they against Gloucester they'll get it together against um, Exeter I'd like to know who the referee is for that semi-final in Dublin because I, I wrote the Achilles heel for me the only Achilles heel I see in that Leinster side is a getaway with murder at the breakdown in terms of taking people out, diving in. James Ryan dives in a lot, flopping in. Now, they play the ref, you know, and that's great. That They get a you know fair play to them. But if they get a ref who isn't going to allow that, if they get a Luke Pierce or a Wayne Barnes on a strict day in a very, very tight match, they're, they're going to suddenly give away three or four penalties that they don't normally give away. And that's how tight that match will be, I think, you know, those little momentum shifts. So... I'm going to go Leinster, but hell of a match. And if they get the wrong ref for them on the wrong day, uh, it might not end well. Well, the good, the good news is it can't be Andrew Brace. <laughs> so, Andrew Brace ref in them would be carnage. He, so be so, that, so that's fantastic. Do you know, um, and we've we've spoken about this on many occasions, uh, and the, the uh, about the French disadvantage when it comes to language. Uh, it comes to communication. I give the game to the Georgian guy, who I think is an outstanding referee. Anyway, totally, totally, and will be able to speak Fran uh, French every bit as comfortably as he speaks English, if not more so. In fact, I think I think he's he's. Having said that, did he not ref from in on Saturday? And I thought I do think he's the world's best ref, but he is quite lenient on the diving in at the rough time. Again, that would be his one Achilles heel. But I agree, he's an absolutely brilliant ref and communicator. I, I think it's the an English ref is what would upset Leinster a bit. An English ref who don't allow so much latitude 
and off the feet. Um, and of course, well, in which case thing. you in which case you want Barnes or Pierce who do something more than shout Allez or Jouet <laughs> once in eighty minutes, which is what the, many of the referees do. At least, at least Barnes and, and Pierce. They make both ref, they referee both sides, don't they? Uh, yeah. They referee both sides, and and Wayne in particular, but Luke to a certain extent as well have a certain amount of French that they can that they yeah. can use. Um, um, if only Tony Sprebri was still with us because he would call someone a plonker in French. <laughs> That'd be glorious. <laughs> but, I mean, hell of a match in prospect there. I mean, yeah. Fabulous. Know. Match of the season. Certainly a contender for it in yeah. head to it. Um, and hopefully it matches the thrillers of Ireland France in the past couple of couple of years. Um, I'm going to go to lose. So, Brendan, you are the Nick Kane of this week in being the differential. We'll see whether... You're as all-conquering as Nick Kane proved to be. Um, but, gents, thank you again for joining me, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday, and to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital, and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.